so yes, I'd like to welcome you to the Dublin Buddha Centre um, for Poetry Day Ireland 2018. And I'd very much like to particularly welcome uh, Maitreya Bandhu, who's um, here with us. I'll introduce Maitreya Bandhu more fully in a moment. Um, uh, so yes, so like I said, my name's Nyana Dara, and I'm the chairman of the Dublin Buddha Centre, and I'll be hosting the <coughs> evening. So just to, just to let you know what we're going to be doing, um, so first of all, we go, I'm going to interview um, Maitreya Bandhu about his work and his life, and then we'll have a tea break, and then after the tea break, uh, Maitreya Bandhu will, will read his work for us. Some of it. Some of it. Yeah, so without further ado, I'll just actually introduce, um, introduce Maitreya Bandhu to you. Um, so, yes, yeah, so Maitreya Bandhu was born in the early 1960s in Warwickshire in England and initially trained as a nurse at um, Walsgrave Hospital in Coventry. Yeah, I um, don't recommend it. <laughs> <laughs> before going on to study fine art at Goldsmith College in London. He started attending classes at the London Buddhist Centre, which is our centre in East London, in 1986 and moved into a residential community above the centre in 1987. He was ordained into the Chiratna Buddhist Order in 1990 and given the name Maitreya Bandhu. Since then, he has lived and worked at the London Buddhist Centre and worked there teaching Buddhism. And more recently, he has become a public preceptor. So this is one of a group of men and women whose responsibility it is to ordain and welcome new members into the Chiratna Buddhist Order. He's written three books on Buddhism, published by Windhorse Publications. And in 2010, he founded Poetry East, a poetry event in the LBC, uh, the London Buddhist Centre, exploring the relationship between the Dharma life, the Buddhist life, and poetry. And he's hosted events with many leading poets, including Joe Shapcott, Don Patterson, and Michael Longley. He's two um, poetry collections published by Bloodaxe Books, a UK poetry publisher, which is The Crumb Road in 2011, and The Yarn in 2015. So the Crumb, Road, uh, the Crumb Road was a poetry book society recommendation. He's also won the Keats Shelley Prize, the Basil Bunting Award, the Geoffrey Dermer Prize, and the Ledbury Festival Poetry Competition. And um, finally, Maitreya Bandhu is in demand in the Triatna Buddhist community as a speaker, retreat leader, and increasingly involved in training others to teach Buddhism. He is a friend and a preceptor to many in our order and our wider community. So that's just a very brief kind of resume of... Um, your illustrious career, <laughs> which started, your life started in um, Henley and Arden. Now, I googled Henley and Arden, uh, which is a small town in the West Midlands, and I uh, was really struck by just how pretty it is. One of those terribly beautiful English towns with a high street with old Tudor buildings and mm. lovely churches and mm. all that kind of thing. And um, in your first collection, the, the, the place really comes through it and the writing just sort of is very vividly evoked in mm. your, your mm. life in the small English town. Mm. And um, I just thought it'd just be nice to hear you just say, say a few words about what it was like growing up there in Henley and Arden and the East Midlands and uh, West Midlands, rather. Midlands. In, I mean, in, in brief, I hated it. <laughs> <laughs> but what about the church as well? <laughs> How old are you two? How old are you? What's your name, little boy? And how old are you? Eight. You're eight, and how old are you? Six. Mm. You come to a poetry event at six. <laughs> so when I was eight, when I was your age, I lived in this small town, uh, which was very pretty, but when you're eight, you don't appreciate, or six, you don't appreciate things being pretty. Mm. Um, mm. I mean, I, I, I think 
I think I've been quite uncharitable about it in some ways. I mean, I I I, I found it a sort of small town and small-minded. Mm. Um, Even when you were eight. Yeah, I hated it. Really? Yeah, I, but then that that was more me than anything. I mean, mm. I had this sense right from the beginning of my life that people weren't telling me the truth. Mm. Um, I remember when my when my when my grandmother died. Um, I remember going up. My father took me to see her when she was dying, you know, dead in the in the bedroom. And uh, I remember really clearly the atmosphere of the room. And I remember someone saying, I think my mother saying, oh, she's asleep. Mm. And I'm thinking, no, because I've seen her asleep. <laughs> she doesn't look like that. <laughs> and, uh, and then I think my mother must have said, oh, she's in a better place. And I thought, well, I don't see that either. Yeah, yeah. And what struck me is that they didn't know. Mm. I thought, they don't, they don't know. Mm. And I don't know what's happened. Mm. I was very close to my grandmother. She rather doted on me. Mm. Um, and I thought, God, they, they don't know, and I don't know. And I had this sense of that the adults were sort of, sort of pretending in a certain sort of way. Mm. I mean, I, I, I was a very unhappy child. Um, mm. And, you know, so it's difficult to tell how, yeah. you know, but I, yeah. Yeah, I had a very sort of yeah. classic unhappy childhood. I have three older brothers who were very cruel to me. Yeah. Um, uh, but then, you know, I used to all blame, you know, I, you know, I used to blame them for that very much. But... Mm. You know, just blokes, my brothers, yeah, you know. Yeah. Um, I, I was terrible, I was a terrible, I don't know whether you have this, either of you, but I was a terribly, terribly sensitive one, I was always crying. Mm. Uh, all the photographs of my family, there's my sister beaming, <laughs> and my brother's big and beaming, and I'm always crying. Yeah. Um, and I know now what it's like to have a child around that's unhappy. Yeah. It's really irritating. Because, <laughs> 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 you know, everyone's having a good time apart from you. Yeah, yeah. My mother used to always say, what's the matter now? Oh, yeah. um, <laughs> She never knew what to do with me. Yeah, yeah. She even apologised for that once. And I said, oh, "Don't worry, I didn't know what to do with me either." Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't, I don't anymore, sort of blame my brothers. You know, but just that's just how it had yeah, to yeah. hang out. But I was very unhappy as a child. Yeah. And you said that it sounded. What did you say? Something like it felt like no one was telling you the truth. Yeah. And did you, were there any kind of cracks in that, or did you ever? Was there anything in the town which felt like something or sounded like something that you could believe or? had some sense of it being real or true? I mean, the church, if anything. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, my brothers didn't have anything to do with the church, although one of my brothers had a slight religious conversion for about two weeks, but that was mm-hmm. then back to, you know, motorbiking. But, <laughs> um, but I, I, um, I joined the church choir before I could read. Oh. I joined it when I was about six, I think. Mm-hmm. Can you read yet? Mm-hmm. No, well, I couldn't read when I was your age. Um, and now he's a poet. Yeah, the, <laughs> it's actually a really good sign if you can't read. <laughs> uh, and my spelling, anyway, that's another, it's still a bit ropey. But um, so I joined the church choir when I was very, very young, and um, I, I remember singing "God So Loved the World That He Gave His Only Begotten Son." Mm. Who so, and I remember finding it just exquisite. Mm. Um, I loved the, the whole atmosphere of it. I mean, I, dis- I didn't. I knew I didn't believe. Interestingly, I've yeah, never yeah. believed in God, mm. and I, I remember trying to for a while. I remember going to see Godspell when I was about thirteen, and having about a week where I managed to believe in Jesus. And then it sort of Godspell is it's a musical, isn't it? For oh, okay. um, a sort of based on the gospel, I think is it. I can't remember, but anyway, I had about a week where I believed. But I never believed. But I, I did. I thought there was a kind of reality in it. Yeah. Much more than there was at school. I hated school. Oh, wow. I was very 
that, that at one point they thought oh, the education is subnormal, is what they uh. used to call it. Um, I remember taking this report home from school uh. and knowing it had bad news. Mm. And um, they were going to send me to a special school because mm. the education is subnormal because I was doing so bad that I couldn't read until yeah. I was quite like nine. nine and is that why you wrote a Sistina about that event? Yes, just that's to, right. Just to prove it, actually. <laughs> <laughs> No. Is that, that's the event that you're just Yeah, that's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, um, yeah I wrote a Sestina about it eventually. Don't try and write a Sestina, it's just a bad, bad idea. But, um, yeah, I, was, I, was very, I, I couldn't actually see the point of reading or writing. Mm. I remember people trying, I just thought, I can't see the point of it. You know, when I could run around, you know. <laughs> what, was the, what was the big deal about opening something and looking at these words? You know, I, just, I really couldn't see it at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then, you know, before you know it, you start to feel like you can't do it, and I couldn't do it. And, um, no, I, I didn't get school at all. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then later on, and there's a, there's a sequence in your first book um, about a young, well, I, can only, I suppose I can only call him a boy called Stephen. Yeah. Which yeah. is it, uh, it has a strong feeling of first love, of yeah, something quite was. magical and beautiful um, happening, but at the same time. A sort of furtiveness and a forbiddenness about it, which together makes for quite a sort of um, that's kind of exquisite at the same time, quite painful to mm. to sort of get into that state of mind for, for, for reading the poems. Yeah, so I, mean, I, was, I was curious to ask you just about that. I will go read some of those later, yeah, the right, Stephen right, sequence. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's really odd because I had this relation, I don't know what it, I don't even have a word for it, yeah, but relationship yeah. isn't right, because yeah. it you know, started when I was eight. Mm. Like Went on to when he was 16. Um, so it really was first love. Yes, yeah. but first love doesn't describe it either. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, any kind of, in this case, a pre sexual relationship. Yeah. Um, I think it, didn't, it, didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was, it was, anyway. Um, <laughs> anyway. And, you know, I think that's difficult for anyone. Um, you know, that, that whole period of working out all of that is quite difficult for anyone. Um, the, the difference between, in this case, the two boys was that I think if if we'd, if we'd been a boy and a girl, you'd talk about it. Yeah. But we never talked yeah, about it. As yeah. far as we were concerned, nothing was happening either. Yeah, yeah. So no words were spoken between yeah. us. Yeah. Nobody even knew we knew each other. Oh right. Um, yeah. I went when I went to his funeral because he was killed when he was sixteen. Mm. Um, when I went to his funeral, nobody knew I was why I was there, and I was slightly in a class different in England. Yeah. The class system's much stronger than it was there. He was very much working class, and I was kind of lower middle class. Mm. Um, I lived on the high street, and he lived in a, an estate. Uh, right. And in in the small yeah. town of Henley Arden, living on a, an estate was a very, you know, very very pejorative and yeah, thing. Yeah. You know. I mean, actually, although we lived on the high street, my father used to dress like a tramp, <laughs> which didn't do it anyway. Um, <laughs> and we had these coaches that were blocking up the high street, so we were, you know, we were we were hardly properly middle class, okay. but. Um, yeah, and then I, um, so I had this sort of whatever, I don't know what to call it, I don't quite have any words for it. But what's in, interesting about it is that he, he used to sort of haunt me. Um, in fact, when, sometimes when I was meditating, I, I've had, one of my experiences I've had where, I don't know whether you've experienced, where I have actually experienced a ghost or something mm. like it, where I was on a retreat, a solitary retreat, and I was washing up some things off breakfast and suddenly he was standing behind me it was really absolutely palpable mm. and I could, there was like a sense of him having something to say to me or, mm. 
and then feeling a bit fed up with me. You know? okay. And then he went. It wasn't. Yeah. Um, of course, I knew he wasn't there, but all the sensation was that was he was there. Yeah. And then I started writing these poems, and I'd write, I'd write about Helianard and the fields around Helianard, which which is my landscape. Yeah. yeah. I didn't experience it as you know anything at the time, yeah, but it's yeah, my yeah, landscape. Yeah. And then he kept on stepping into the poem. Uh, right. And my mentor, Mimi Calvati, she said, you're writing a sequence here, mm. which I didn't have any sense of what. Mm. And then I started writing more about it. Mm. The fri- slightly frightening thing is once I've finished the sequence, he doesn't haunt me anymore. Oh, right. And, and is that, are you happy about that? Or is, is there a sense of loss with that? No, I'm not, I don't think I am happy yeah. with it. I mean, he's very much in the poems, but he's not yeah. in me anymore. Yeah, yeah, it's really yeah. odd. Yeah. I mean, it's like, he used to be there. I could call him up and... I've even written a poem about the fact that he's not there anymore. Because some of the some of the, the poems in, in your second book, there, there's a sense of, um, well, particularly about your other friend who, who died, much much later. Oh, yeah, much life, later, yeah, yeah. Um, a sense of trying to call up a memory of somebody who's not there anymore, yeah, and just yeah. the sort of weirdness of that. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, didn't, it is odd though that you can write something, and the memory becomes fused with the poem, mm. and sort of leaves you. I'm not sure I like it. It's like I killed him again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not sure I like that. Yeah. I mean, I hope that it's sort of... I hope it's not that, but... Yeah. Um, well, I suppose maybe other people can enjoy. Yeah, that's what you, you know. Because, I mean, like, they're terrific sequence. Yeah, yeah, I think it's one of the best things in the book. Probably. Yeah. And they're, so, they're very, very sad. Oh, they're terribly, they're terribly sad. Terribly sad. <laughs> yeah. kind, of, kind, of, there's a, kind of an ache. Like yeah, it's terribly sad. Yeah. And, I mean, so I was curious to ask you as well of that experience of... Um, of all that being hidden. I mean, I didn't realise it was as hidden as it was, that mm. nobody even knew that you knew him. No, I think no. you get a sense of that in the poems. Yeah, yeah. Of kind of, I was just wondering how, if you have a sense of that shaping your character, shaping the way you think about the world, shaping the way you write about it. Um, or maybe it's so close to you that it's difficult to answer that. I mean, I think um, secrecy is a really bad thing. Mm. Uh, I think the main damage done by it was secrecy. Yeah. I mean, in that, those days, you know, it was around the time of, um, what's his name, Jeff, uh, Anton Thorpe, what's his name? Jeremy. Jeremy Thorpe and all that sort of thing. And, you know, for me, being gay, I don't think of myself as gay, but, you know, that would have to do. But for that, at that time, it was like a, for me, it was like a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, so I was, it was, it was, a, it was a, a guilty secret for until I was... In, my, in about in the twenties, yeah. Um, you know, and, you know, what, what what I regret now looking back on it because I have felt you know aggrieved by that. Yeah, sure. But what I have regret looking back on, I wish I'd been braver. Mm. Some people were braver. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, what? And it's sort of almost impossible. But I could have just think, yeah, but it doesn't this just comes out to me naturally? It doesn't something that's been given to me. Yeah. Um, I wish I'd been. I wish I'd been braver, and I think that is something in my life generally that I've been a, I've been quite a frightened person. Mm. Um, I've had to learn to be braver, mm. um, and I, th- I think I was frightened. Then, partly having three older brothers and all that sort of thing, yeah. and it was unthinkable. Um, uh, but I wish I'd wish I'd been braver looking yeah. back. On it. I, I used to don't know whether you did it. I used to sort of crumple at difficulty rather than you know yeah. rear up yeah. to face it. I yeah. I try and make myself as small as possible yeah. so it wouldn't be painful. And, yeah. It just doesn't work. And it sounds like through your life you've, um, in a way, developed that capacity of being brave. I mean, you talked about I could have been braver and it's something I've had to... Well, you know, how did you... I can't remember you put it just now, but 
I mean, I still think I've got a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I still need, need to be more courageous. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult to be courageous in the right way. But, sure, um, sure, sure. Uh, I think life does re- require a lot of courage, doesn't it? Um, including the courage not. You know, I, I for, for a long time I thought myself very much as a, as a victim of my brothers oh. and as a victim really of my father. Actually, he's puffed. <laughs> it's just, he was in the shed most of the time. Um, <laughs> but, you know, uh, and a victim of, you know, a small town, Middle English childhood. Yeah. And, and I, I, I really think I've really, that's been really unhelpful to me, yeah. to think of myself in that way. Yeah. It's not entirely untrue. Though, you know, my yeah. brothers were cruel to me, but yeah. um, it's too easy to think of oneself as a victim. Yeah. And that, 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 I think, has been a very bad legacy for yeah, me. Yeah. And I can still slip into that feeling kind of hard done by him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. So from there, from, from um, some, somehow you found your way to... Um, uh, nursing school, yeah. which I, I'm not sure you want to talk about that very much. Maybe is it? it was a mistake. You know? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> we've been <swiftly> along. <laughs> and then, but then, interestingly, you found yourself at art school, yeah. which might be surprising considering you're <coughs> having written books of poems. Yeah, yeah. You were something. You went to art school, yeah. and your bio says you you were there with Sarah Lucas and Damien Hirst. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to resist the urge to ask you about that yeah, because yeah. I think it's going to be a bit of a digression. But um, as tempting as it is. But what I'm interested in is what attracted you to, you know, making art or going to art school. Or no, was that always yeah. something that was there from? You know? Yeah, I'd always, I've always drawn and painted when I was a child. I yeah. always drew and painted. I always drew. Uh, I mean, children do, don't they? But you draw, don't you? Yeah. Do you draw? Yeah. Do you still draw? Yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. So I mean, children naturally draw. I mean, just you Sorry? Are you drawing ninjas? Ninjas, yeah. <laughs> That's a bit after my time. But yeah, <laughs> I don't know what I drew, but you just naturally draw. It's such a good thing to do, drawing. Um, and I did, I always used to, my brothers would be off doing something more more robust. Like they used to draw, you know, they used to do motocross, you know, in my, uh, and I, you know, yeah, I used to stand and watch sometimes and get cold. <laughs> so I used to sit down and stay at home and draw. So I was always drawing. And then um, I went to, I went, I became a nurse. I think actually my instinct to become a nurse was I wanted to help people. Oh yeah. yeah. Um, but I was such a I was such a mess at that time, and I don't know that I did help very much, but it was quite funny. <laughs> um, I used to dye my hair red and do a bit. Anyway, you know, it was that time. Anyway, I went to um, I went to uh, a holiday with a friend of mine. Actually, it coincided with he was the first man I'd ever told I was gay as well. Oh, and really? This is you know this is when I was you know, like early 20s. Mm. And he, he's an Irish, lovely man, Sam. He, I think he's, he lives in Belfast now. Very, very cultured man. As so many Irish people seem to be, <clears> compared to the English. Um, and he just, when I, I said I got something terribly terrible to tell you, and I told him, and he just laughed and laughed for ages. He said, I thought at the very least you were going to say you've eaten a baby or something. <laughs> <laughs> and it's such the right response yeah, to yeah, laugh. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, we went on this holiday together. Uh, to Amsterdam, mainly to smoke things, but I won't ne- mention. Um, but um, mainly to smoke things and drink uh, Black Bush Mills whiskey, wow. uh, which I discovered about the same time uh, through him. And then we went to the Van Gogh Museum, mm. and at the time they had a whole retrospective of his work. And as I went up the museum, I mean, I just thought, I have got to do this. I've absolutely got to do it. I must go to art school. I mean, it was like a revelation of that. Yeah, this is incredible. I've got to do it. Mm. And so I went. Then, then I went to Goldsmiths. And 
but you know, I didn't do very well there. But I, I, I did eventually, I think. But at first, I just sort of crumpled again into the atmosphere. It was a very competitive atmosphere yeah, at yeah, art school. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I remember that that show. You know, it was like it was a revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought this is just like the meaning of life. Yeah. I've got to do this. Yeah. Just one of the striking things about your your books is there's quite a few references, particularly to Cezanne. Yeah, yeah. And I know that you were. Well, I gather you're going to read a few poems about Cezanne's work yeah. later on. I'm obsessed with Cezanne. Yeah. Cezanne I was going to use, I heard that she got obsessed or devoted, I think. Yeah, obsessed is probably <laughs> so, so can you say a little bit about that? Because that's quite interesting that, um, you know, you're writing poems about painting and you yeah. went to art school. It's kind of curious. I mean, I, uh, for a long time, the whole question of, you know, because I, I got involved in Buddhism at the, in second year at art school, mm. um, I was really unhappy at art school, I'm afraid, again. Um, uh, I didn't do very well in that atmosphere. I came along to the Buddhist centre. As soon as I went to the Buddhist centre, I thought, oh, I'm a Buddhist, I've always been a Buddhist, that's what I am, what a relief. I thought I thought that being gay would sort of, once I came oh, out, yeah, I yeah. thought that would do it, you know, yeah. I'm gay, oh, they're all great, you know, yeah. all the lights would come on and have a lovely time through it. You know. yeah. <laughs> so it was so not like that. Yeah. Anyway, um, but it was really coming to yeah. contact with Buddhism. And... Um, so I, you know, I, I just, I, I you know, I, I got very, very involved. Um, but then, for a long time, there was a real tension between painting and practicing Buddhism. Oh, right. um, I used to paint in my room. I, I was an artist in residence for a while. Really difficult with painting. As soon as I start painting, that's all I want to do. Mm. Um, you need a studio. You need to mix colours. You know, all that sort of thing. Yeah. So for a long time, there was a real tension between the two. Right, right. Um, and then, you know, poetry just sort of. I discovered on this sabbatical, long story, but I kind of discovered it out of nowhere. I'd always read it, but, you know, it's always an embarrassment to try and write poems, and you should yeah. never read them to people. <laughs> you know, if you're trying to be a Buddhist and kind to people, the least you can do is not read them. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, there should, there should be some sort of health warning. You sort of, can I read your poems? <laughs> Somebody recently asked Bhante Sangrachin, my own teacher, can I read you a poem? And he said, how long is it? <laughs> and I thought, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Never mind that, you know, how many lines we're we talking. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I've always loved painting, you know. Yeah. Suzanne, I, had the, I went to Paris for a holiday, and my art tutor had been trying to get me to look at Suzanne. I'd looked at one in the Tate and not been, not been impressed at all. I wanted something much more passionate. Mm. And um, I went to um, the Dorsey in Paris, and there's a famous still life there, a great one of the great still life. People often think that Cezanne's greatest work is still life. Um, I think he's pretty great in every field. But And I remember looking at this painting, having what you'd have to describe as a religious experience, looking at it, um, where I seem to move outside of, outside of time, and outside of myself. And, um, for, for really, that spot was sort of fascination in Cezanne. And then I, you know, I've read four biographies of Cezanne. I've read lots of critical studies, I've looked at the paintings a lot, mm. um, you know, it's not just as I mean, I've looked at yeah, sure. people, but, um, It just seems, it seems to crop up again and again. Yeah, he, he sort of haunts me. Yeah. You know, I'm writing this collection about Cezanne, which will come out next year, and I'd be really sorry when it's out, because yeah, yeah. I can't write about him again. Yeah, you know? sure, sure. And I need to let him go, but, yeah. I mean, I'll never let, looking at the paintings go. Yeah, yeah, sure. Just, I mean, he, he is the great modern artist, I think. Uh, the, you know, both as a, both in terms of the work and in terms of his person. I mean, a remo- you know, he used to wake up at four. Um, he'd have black coffee. He would read Flaubert. He'd, um, he'd then start painting. You know, <laughs> he'd paint until it just got too hot to be inside. You know, um, 
He said, I am old and ill and I have vowed to die painting. And that's pretty much what yeah. happened. So you were saying, we were just having dinner earlier, and you were saying that you're particularly um, taken with his letter writing as well. But his letter, the one? Yeah. Fabulous. So, um, so straightforward. Right. So unpretentious yeah, and yeah. unarty. Yeah, yeah. You know, he says things like, you know, uh, it is it is superfluous to say that I'm always painting. And, you know, I work. He mostly says that, you know, and I, of course I'm working. and da, da. But they're wonderful letters. Mm. You know, really worth reading the letters. Particularly the late letters to his son. There's a year's worth of letters, letters right at the end of his life to his son. They think his son only had a clear out every, at the end of every year and threw out all his correspondence because presumably there's lots of correspondence with his son and they were all thrown out at the end of the year. But Cezanne died before the end of that year. Oh, wow. So those letters have been kept. Oh, That's wow. what they think. Because they've only got this one year of letters to his son. Wow. And they're the, the strongest letters in the year. Wow. Lovely. Yeah. He loved, he, he'd absolutely dirted on his son. Mm. So, so moving... Um it's it's a shame to keep moving on, but I just I, I mean you, you mentioned a sort of a you'd always read poetry, hmm. um, so well, you're here you're here because it's poetry day and um, how did I mean how did all that start in terms of uh, first of all reading poems enjoying poems and then getting around to writing some yourself? I mean it was very late. I mean most people who write poems seriously start yeah, very yeah. very early. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, Michael Longley, I can't read it. I think he you know he probably wrote a poem before he spoke almost. <laughs> It's like got poetry oozing out of it. Yeah. Um, with me, you know, I, I do come from this lower middle class background. In England, the, the arts are really very class, yeah. used to be, and probably a bit less, but still pretty much, very class orientated. Mm. You know, I, I didn't do well at school, so, I, you know, my we didn't do Shakespeare because that was too highbrow oh, for yeah. us. Yeah. So I was brought up with this basic sense of, Things like Shakespeare and Milton and Shelley yeah. and Keats, that, that, that I couldn't possibly have understood that. They were yeah. for somebody better educated than me. Yeah. So, until at art school, I remember reading Eliot and being very impressed with Eliot, but that's pretty much all I read. Mm. That's until I was like 23. And then I got ordained. I was ordained, I was, well, it's later than that, because I was ordained when I was 29. And then two years later, so I was 32, I went to Australia and New Zealand. Um, with David Mitra, you know, a friend of ours, um, you know, very, very cultured man. And um, I remember very, very one of those things, you, ne- you don't know what's meaningful until years afterwards. You, you can never judge the meaning of things, because it depends. Like at the time, it didn't strike me at all, but what, we were, I remember it really clearly even where we were. We were in uh, this particular room in Auckland. Uh, you know, there, I'll just make the New Zealand connection. Thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah, I knew I'd get it in somewhere. Um, <laughs> and I remember, he's a lovely man to argue with, because you can argue with Dave Mitchell and Carlson Home, he never gets unpleasant. He just never, ever gets unpleasant. And I remember saying, well, you know, Eliot's a much better poet than Shelley. Oh. I mean, I hadn't read a word of Shelley. <laughs> but, you know, one likes to express an opinion. Um, and he said, it's nonsense. I said, no, no, no. And we had this sort of argument, yeah. like, ridiculous, because I didn't know it. So he, he literally went and got a you know, collection of poems, and he read me the first five verses of The Mask of Anarchy in his blood-curdling, actually, voice. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, just, I, I really remember, he, he was standing at the side of the lounge and reading the five verses. It's a, it's a long poem, we only read five verses of it. I remember thinking, oh, good heaven, that, that's... That's of a completely different order to Eliot. You know, Eliot's rather, I don't I actually think he's overrated generally. 
I mean, he's wonderful, but I think generally I'd be overrated. But um, I used to think he was, um, that was it, you know, yeah. could, could get better. And suddenly there's this massive step change to oh. Shelley. And the sound of it, uh, I remember, like, it was hair-raising listening. You just think, and I remember thinking, oh, my, oh, good, oh, oh right, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I read, you know, then I read a very famous biography of Shelley called The Pursuit by Richard Chern, which is one of the best biographies ever written, one of the great biographies. It's like a thriller, and he died when he was 26, something like that, but, you know, um, incredible life is sort of a, anyway, everything. Um, read all the work, read it again, then I went, read, so I read all the Shelley, and then, of course, Shelley was a friend of Keats, so I read Keats's biography, and then I read all of Keats, and then there's a particular poem of Keats I liked, and that was influenced by Coleridge on one hand and Dante on another, so I then read all of Dante, which took me forever, because um, I read it once and then once without notes, once with notes and then once without notes again. And then I read all of Coleridge. Um, so I mostly read Romantics for ages, yeah, yeah. and it never occurred, you know, it would, would never have occurred to me to try to write it. I mean, I did, yeah, but, you yeah, know, you, yeah, yeah. you sort of apologise. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I never would have thought of writing it up yeah, ever. Um, but... You, you, I you, you now do it. You've yeah. got two books sitting there. So yeah, what, what, uh, <laughs> embarrassing. Yeah. Um, so what, what, what was the kind of spark for that? Well, what happened was I went on this sabbatical, a seven-month sabbatical. So I've been living and working at the London Buddhist Centre for, for a long time, mostly teaching and, I don't know, befriending people and being part of meetings and all that kind of stuff. Um, I went on this seven-month sabbatical to write a book about Buddhism and art, which I've been wanting to write for years. And I... For three months of this sabbatical, I wrote, sat down all day writing this book. Um, hated writing it. Um, but, you know, I thought, no, that's what I'm here for, seven yeah. months, I'm going to get this book written, I'm yeah. finally going to write this book. And then a good friend of mine, Jan of Archer, came to see me in the middle of the sabbatical. And I, he read the manuscript. I've written, I don't know, a lot. I yeah, yeah. He read the manuscript and he came back and said, I'm neither impressed with you or the manuscript. <laughs> That's the sort of friends I've got. Um, <laughs> and again, it was one of those, I think it was an absolutely crucial moment. Yeah. And he said, I think you should stop writing. I don't think it's doing you any good, and I don't think the book's any good. Wow. And you have to remember, this, was, this is something I've been wanting to write and meaning to write for years and years. This book. Uh, yeah. It's a wretched book. Right from the early days when I first got involved. Yeah, yeah. So I said, it was one of those moments where you think, no! Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and yet, right. Deep down, I thought, he's right. Because I was so unhappy yeah, writing it. Yeah. So I stopped writing it. Literally, I've never looked at it again. And I started painting more. I started meditating more. I mean, I was meditating, but I meditated more. And, you know, I started writing poems more, which yeah. I'd always done. Okay. Um, but I'd never typed them up. So I started typing some up. Mm-hmm. And then I typed some up. And then I sent them to a friend, and she was encouraging about them. Oh. I didn't need much encouragement. And I, I took them more seriously. And then I... I mean, I think the turning point came when I went on a... On a I went on a writing week. And um, I learned what it meant to work on a poem. Right. I never knew what that meant. Yeah. I thought poems were basically... I feel a bit miserable just now. So, OK, that's a good first line. <laughs> <laughs> and I, that's not enough. So, and somebody laughed. Oh, a bit of laughter. And then there was a blackbird. OK. <laughs> OK, second poem. I mean, I do think that's what... You know, it's like, and people say work on a poem. You should say, well, I was feeling miserable and there, were, there was a bit of laughter and then I had a blackbird. You know, 
what else is there to do? And I discovered what working on a poem means. And once you, I mean, I, if I were you, don't go near it. Um, once you learn what working on a poem means, I mean, it's like doing the Rubik's Cube, but it's just even more infuriating yeah. and obsessive, you know. Yeah. Can't stop it. Because, I mean, I've had a go a few times and I found it terribly, 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 terribly difficult. It is. Yeah, so I just sort of stopped doing it. Yeah. Um, and um, so, I, I would, you know, there's lots of <clears throat> there's lots of ways of expressing yourself. Like, I mean, you know, in the Buddhist context, you know, you can you can do interviews, you can do talks, yeah, yeah. you can do classes, you can you can write a report, yeah, and you, know, you can write essay, you can you can uh, you can talk to a friend. There's all these ways that you can communicate, and yet you keep coming back to this particular Ooh. way, this particular form, this particular mode of expression. So, what is it about about it that um, makes it something that you want to do. I mean, I, I think it might be just like something wrong with my DNA. <laughs> Someone said, you know, poetry is not a calling, it's a diagnosis. Um, <laughs> so I think that would get a bit yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's, it's an absurd form to, 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 to write in for all sorts of reasons. Firstly, nobody reads it. Yeah. I mean, do you yeah. know anybody? I mean, it might be different. I think it is a bit different in Ireland, but not very much. Nobody reads poetry, certainly contemporary poetry. Yeah. Um, nobody reads poetry very seriously. It's, it's like, it's become ridiculously niche. Yeah. Um, even those people who read it, I mean, mostly, it, if anyone reads poetry at all, it's nearly always the romantics, yeah. quite right. Mm. And, you know, they might read Shameless, you know, yeah. and that's about it. Yeah. Um, so nobody reads it, and it's impossible to do. I mean, it literally, you just can't possibly do it. Yeah. It's just ridiculously hard. The, the trouble is it uses ordinary speech and it uses um, uses the language that we're using now. Yeah. So it's not clear why it's ridiculously hard. And the, tr- the trouble is a lot. you can look like a poem and it not be. Mm. It's absurdly hard to do well, even yeah. to do modic- moderately yeah, yeah, well. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, so you think it's ridiculous. And then you read, I don't know, you read Elizabeth Bishop, you read Emily Dickinson, you read Keats, you read... You read Larkin, you read Seamus Heaney, you read uh, Derek, um, Derek Mahan, um, and God, you just think, wow, mm. you know, it's, it, like any great form, it, it can do incredible things. You know, like, you know, who would have thought paint on a canvas could transport you into a religious ecstasy? You know, um, you know, I just, just recently, I, I left it ages, but I've just recently read um, Paradise Lost. I didn't read it because I thought it would be sort of slightly boring and kind of worthy. It's yeah. brilliant, you yeah. know, so relevant. Mm. And, you know, the syntax, you just read it for the syntax, it's like, the syntax is like toffee, you can chew it, you know, it's gorgeous. Mm. Yeah, it's absolutely gorgeous. Um, but it's almost, in, I mean, it is impossible because what poetry is trying to do is use words to get beyond words. Yeah. <coughs> what's remarkable is that some people can, you can never actually do that, it's, it's a kind of oxymoron, but the best poets do get very close to it. Yeah. You know, um, you read a, like, Stopping by Woods on a Snowy Evening, you know, to use that, Frost is, an, you know, Frost is a great hero of mine. Um, I mean, it's incredible, the achievement. You read Wordsworth, incredible, the achievement. And the fact that it's using the words that we use makes it, for me, even more exciting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, it, it is literally impossible and you wouldn't do it except for you read some things and you think, oh my, that is just wonderful. Mm. You, know? you read, read Derek Mahan, you know, you can't, you just can't beat it with a big stick. It's best poems, you know. Mm. 
you know, you, you want to run out, you know, with it over your head. Yeah, you know? yeah, um, yeah. I mean, just wonder. They never, they won't die. You know, you read a Shakespeare sonnet and he says, you know, I praise your beauty and yeah. this will stay long before. That's just yeah. true, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. You read it, you know, I remember stopping at the South Bank and they had a video of somebody reading, you know, a, a sonnet, one of the sonnets. And I just burst into tears. It's just so wonderful. Yeah. It's like, Wonderful. So, I mean, you could you could just appreciate it. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but you know you've actually you know you're actually going a step further and trying to have a bit of a stab at it yourself, which is you know. I think it's more important to read it than to write it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, unless you're a genius, and I'm definitely not a genius. Uh-huh. I rather hoped I would be, but there you go. Um, <laughs> but there's actually more people re- writing poetry now than reading it. Oh, right. Um, which is a bit like saying there's more people <laughs> playing jazz and listening to it. Just like. You do that. <laughs> 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 the actual answer is it's not. You can't really do that, you know. But, uh, actually, there are literally more people writing it than reading yeah. it, um, or they just read their friends. Yeah. Um, it's, it's it's much more important to read it uh, than to write it. But like with anything, if you love it, you just eventually can't stop yourself. Right, right, right. You know, like if like with those looking at those Van Gogh paintings, I just think they sort of. The, the paintings are seeming to say, you know, I am a fact. You need to try and become a fact as well. Mm. You, know, you could, you need to try and do this. Mm. And if you read a poem deeply, you know, it's, it'll make you want, oh, golly, I, I could try and do that. Yeah, it's yeah. just so wonderful. It's so valuable. Yeah. And then you can never do it. Yeah. But you drive yourself half crazy trying to. So you've been you've got two books of driving yourself half crazy. Yes, yeah, sure. and um, it's quite. I, I read I read I read them when they came out, um, and then I just read them much kind of closer to closer to each other. If you see what I mean, mm. and um, it's quite striking how different they are. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that's most obvious is um, in the first book. Um, you wouldn't necessarily know that you were a Buddhist, except no, that it says yeah. it on the dust jacket. Yeah, that's right. But on the other one, it's very, right from the outset, it's, it's overt, it's yeah, explicit. Yeah. Whereas yeah, yeah. in the other book, I think if you if you know a little bit about Buddhism and you know that you're a Buddhist, you can kind of think, oh, okay, I think I know what he's talking about. Mm-hmm. But it's but if you didn't know that, you wouldn't necessarily pick that no, up. No. But the other book, it's very, um, very explicit. Um, and uh, I was really struck by that. And yeah. um, I don't know, was that a conscious thing? To, or was that just how it came out? Or were you trying to hold things back in the first one and coming out of the closet a bit more in the second one? Or I think all of those three things. Part, I remember inhibiting a poem because it was too Buddhist. Yeah. Um, although actually it wasn't finished. So it wasn't. Um, also, I just didn't know. I, you can't write... You can never... Poetry is the... Is the uh, is allergic to um, um, ideology. So, however good your ideology is, real poetry is allergic to it, like oil to water. So, you know, I just couldn't... I know I know most of the stories about Buddhism, I couldn't... Yeah. You know, I remember thinking there's no way I could ever write a poem with the word Buddha in it. Mm-hmm. Actually, I have now, but um, in the, the new collection, there is actually yeah. the word Buddha in it. But, I, you know, I just thought, I just can't do that. Um, you can never write to any kind of order. I mean, you can you can be given a you know someone can give you a commission, yeah. and that's different somehow because yeah. you've been asked to, and mm. sometimes that sparks what. Mm. But you can never write according to what you think you should say, yeah. or if you do, it's not a poem; it's yeah. dead in the water. Yeah. So I literally didn't think I could write about Buddhism. Um, 
also don't I am allergic to spiritual poems yeah right. uh, I don't like them I don't like anyone trying to improve me partly especially in poetry I can't bear it yeah um, you know, is that what you mean by a, a, a spiritual poem something that's a bit wispy a bit kind of good for you a bit yeah. sort of you know yeah I'm having a mystic moment in the kitchen kind of thing I can't bear it I, would have... <laughs> <laughs> um, I just I usually don't believe it I don't yeah. think it's honest uh, and I don't think something that's not honest is spiritual yeah. I don't um, so I tend to be a le- so I, all of that meant I just didn't write that stuff yeah, and also yeah. the things that I seem to want to write were about Stephen about yeah. I mean there is one full out spiritual poem in the first book which is Rangia Taylor which is oh, yeah, my, yeah. my sort of uh, New Zealand poem but yeah. um, it's actually a fully spiritual parable but it's very disguised yeah, yeah. Um, and then this strange thing happened in the second book where I mean the, the, the test I gave myself with this second book which is thicker and bigger and uh, which I think is actually a better collection, but it's had much less attention. I first I wanted to extend my formal yeah, yeah, skill, yeah. so I used rhyme much more. Yeah, yeah. Rhyme is very out of fashion in poetry generally still. Um, real shame, isn't it? Because it's the one form you can rhyme in. You can't rhyme in journalism, you know. Um, <laughs> you know, try it. You know, which know, seems a shame not to rhyme in at least sometimes in poetry. Actually, the the fact with rhyme is just very difficult to do well. Yeah, yeah. And it, if you do it badly, it really shows up. Yeah. If you do free verse badly, it doesn't show up very much. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I wanted to extend my formal range, mm. but also I wanted you can never say the same things in poetry. And then I had this experience I was telling you about earlier yeah. where Sabuti, who's a friend of us both, was giving a talk and uh, he said, I want to tell you this story about the travellers from Orissa. And I remember thinking, huh? I mean, this is what poetry is. You go, that's a poem. That is a poem. There's a poem called The Travellers from Orissa. You know, there's somewhere in the universe, I knew as soon as he said that, there's a poem that's called The Travellers from Orissa. It just doesn't exist, but there is there somewhere. Now, interestingly, they're, off, they're sometimes called the merchants from Orisha. Yeah. In fact, often they're referred to as the merchants from And I wouldn't have written a poem if it didn't yeah. say that. And so I literally remember going up off, and I didn't know the story. That was really important. Oh, okay. I'd never heard the story. I'd never heard that story. I'd never heard of the travellers from Orisha. Had I heard of them, or if it had been a different word, not travellers, yeah. if it had been merchants, then there wouldn't have been a poem. And I remember going upstairs and writing, starting to write it. And the first paragraph of that poem like, I've hardly changed it. Tapusa mm. said the oxen stood stock still, so you immediately know it's in, in yeah. pentameter. It's okay, it's in B. So it found its way into that immediately. Immediately it was yeah. in blank verse. I thought it would be in, like, mm. I thought it would be in Dante as tercets in, in, th- in threes. Um, but immediately, the Tapusa said the oxen stood stock still. It's the first line. I never changed that line. And the first paragraph I just wrote out pretty much, changed it only very slightly. Mm. Then it took me, I think, 98 drafts and something like four years to finish the registry mm. and I take it to my mentor and she said um, I took it, I finished it I was really pleased with it it's about two pages long which I thought was very long for a poem and she said yeah it's good it's good but it wants to be longer and I think well I've nothing else to say <laughs> I go do what happened and she said no this is finishing in the middle of the story you need to tell the rest of the story mm. didn't know what the story was because yeah. there's no story of Tapusa and Volker then there isn't a story of them um, and I remember just thinking I don't know what it is. So there's literally just a mention and a sutter of these two characters. Yeah, I mean the reason they're remembered is they're supposed to be the people, the first lay men in this case to meet the Buddha. The first person to meet the Buddha after he was in line was a a Brahmin, and then they 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 met him. The the, the reason why they're remembered is they gave 
the Buddha his first meal. Yeah. But then they then they took the two refuges. They right. took the Buddha refuge and the Dharma refuge because yeah, yeah. there was no Sangha. Mm. So they took the red two refuges and they went back to Arissa. Yeah. And there's a weird little cult in Arissa, a Hindu cult, that worships a god called Dharma. Mm. So that it's quite possibly that it's true. Yeah, yeah. Um, but there's nothing known about them. There's no story. So you, I have to find the story. Yeah, yeah. To yeah. It. And, it, and it, the story comes from one word in that first pa- paragraph. If it oh. wasn't been one word in that paragraph, they wouldn't have happened. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the word but, oh, right. which is repeated. It just <laughs> says, but it's true we stopped, and it's true this day was still. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the whole... The whole drama of the first paragraph is, Tapusa said the oxen stood stock still. He said this and this and this and this and this, but he was exaggerating and you can't trust him and he's yeah, always yeah. making up stories, yeah. but. Yeah, 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 yeah. So the whole drama comes out of somebody talks a lot and says fantastical things, yeah. but something was true. Yeah, yeah. So then I had to find out what was true. Yeah, it took yeah. me forever to write yeah, it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Fantastic. I mean, that's when you're writing, you're talking at least 50 drafts. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, really? I was really surprised. I was up, I went up to the Seamus Heaney home place, oh. and I, it was just really interesting because you see his drafts. Mm. And one of his really famous poems, I can't remember which one it is now, but there was one draft and he had the last two lines the other way around. Right, I was yeah. actually shocked. Yeah. It's like at some point you just turn them around. You yeah, think yeah. it could only have been that way around. But, you know. um, so, um, maybe I'll just, um, just ask you one other thing, and then we can maybe see if people have got questions. Um, for you from the floor, um, which basically it's just I'm just one thing I find really interesting about you is that you, you know you're very much part of the kind of Buddhist community, you're very much mm. part of that world. You live, you literally live above the LBC, yeah, yeah. the London Spend Buddhist. Spend most of my time. There. You spend most of your time <laughs> there. You live with a whole bunch of guys who are yeah. all Buddhists. Um, you ordain people. You lead retreats, and but you also you know do poetry readings and kind of and you're part of that poetry world. And then you've you know you've brought these two worlds together. In Poetry East, um, where you you know you interview poets in the yeah, Buddha yeah. Center, yeah, yeah. and um, I just wondered if you had any thoughts about what uh, what maybe Buddhists can learn from that world, and what that world can maybe learn from the Buddhist world, if anything. Well, that's such a good question. Um, I think what Buddhists could learn from the not the poetry world so much, but poets and oh, poetry. Yeah. Um, there's not much to learn from the poetry world, I don't think. Um, it's actually, because it's a prestige world, it's, it, it can be a very unpleasant world, I'm afraid. Um, just actually, as a Buddhist world can be. Yeah. And any world in which there's prestige, it's very, very problematic. Mm. There's no money in poetry, but there's a lot of prestige. Mm. Still got that, still got that twinkle, hasn't it, the yeah. word poet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Even Michael Longley, who deserves the word poet, mm. he said in an interview, I'm really uneasy about being called a poet. Yeah, yeah. He said it's like being called a saint. Oh. <laughs> you know, um, I was very struck by that. Yeah. You know. um, yeah. um, but what you could learn, I think, I think one, one of the things you, try, you learn from poetry is not to take things literally. Uh, yeah. The mm. language is metaphoric. Mm. So you're always trying to see what the metaphor is saying. Mm. Um, everything is metaphor. Buildings are metaphors. Mm. Um, and that, I mean, I, I mean, trouble with writing poetry, it rocks your brain. It makes everything metaphoric. I mean, mm. I've got worse. I mean, I, I was pretty bad, didn't I? <laughs> but, you know, like... Anything that involves things where there's straight lines and, you know, I only have to go into that, like, poetic-y, mystic-y, misty thing and I'm, you know, that's it, I mistrained and all that. Um, <laughs> makes you very unreliable. Don't do it, you know. You all, um, 
So anyway, but I think the value of it is that language itself is metaphoric, yeah. and then not not to not to fixate on yeah. words, and even yeah. Buddhists sometimes do that. Yeah, yeah, um, sure. So I think that is something very much that Buddhism could learn from poetry. Yeah. I think um, what poetry can learn from Buddhism, I think, is this vexed question of religion. Mm. Um, I'm very keen on this poet, uh, Robert uh, Richard Wilbur, American poet. He died just recently, last October. He was 96. He was became well known as a Second World War poet. P- beautiful poet, fabulous poet. Not very much read in the UK. I don't know about Ireland, but um, you know, the, the, one of the reasons he's not very read is he's very, was very religious, and his poems are often got they're not haven't got God in it, but it's got a clear sense of yeah, religiousness. Yeah. Um, and we have this weird thing where we want to say no. That bit over there is religion, and that's problematic. And you know, for very good reason. I mean, religion has been a huge problem. I mean, there's as much to argue against it as there is for it. Um, I mean, it's been a huge problem. But um, uh, so what we've got in poetry is this idea of imagination, and that can take you somewhere into another world. But we've still got a, the, the word imagination is still very secular. Yeah. It still has a, effectively a glass ceiling on it. In other words, it doesn't allow you to have religious experience yeah. because that's religion. Mm. And Buddhism just would want. I just think I think you could, you could learn that actually the imagination has got no ceiling on it. Mm. Uh, that it can go into ex- ranges of experience which are natural to us. Mm. Uh, they're not uh, supernatural. Yeah. They're not God ordained. Um, I mean, well, how I've been thinking of it recently. I might. T- I thought I'd talk about this tomorrow night when I'm teaching here. Is that. Um, is that you know human beings are an oxymoron. We're 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 risen ape and fallen angel, mm. and I use those that metaphorically. And, and the angel means that you've got within you infinite capacities. You can have infinite experiences. Mm. Human beings have always had them. They're even fairly commonplace. Mm. It's just that we, understandably, they're 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 they're, they're disorientating. Mm. So we've given a call. This created this word called religion that yeah. cordons that off. Yeah, yeah. But what Buddhism could do is reunite the world in the sense of that you've got um, that there isn't a secular and a divine. Mm. They're, 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 they're now highly problematic metaphors. The secular reduces you to a sort of little rational bit of you know selfish gene, which is just so impoverished. The idea of secularity now is so impoverished and so small-minded. Um, you know, when you dream, it doesn't feel secular. When you fall in love, it's not a secular experience. You know, we are not secular creatures. It's a very bad metaphor. If you try and think you're secular, you'll just make yourself into this small kind of resentful little thing. It's just not right, you know. But um, I don't know where that comes across. But, <laughs> but uh, I'm, I'm much more enraged by secularism at the moment. Um, but then the divine, you, if, if you're not careful, you just get caught up in really unhelpful metaphors. Um, Buddhism doesn't have that. It doesn't have a secular and it doesn't have a divine. Yeah. It just has this thing called light. And that's, golly, mysterious enough. I mean, we don't know how life, how deep life runs. We really do not know. Yeah. Which means we don't know how deep we run. You know, the, the figure of the Buddha is um, a figure for saying, well, your, your, run, your life runs that deep. It becomes golden. It becomes majestic. It becomes wisdom and compassion, you know. Um, now, I want to live in a world where I don't know how deep life runs, yeah, you know. Yeah. And you get a taste of that from poetry. Read, you know, read a great frost poem. Read 
read all of Elizabeth Bishop, read Emily Dickinson, read um, Keats. Mm. All of them give you intimations that, golly, my, that being runs much deeper than I thought. And, oh, I really needed it. Mm. Like, I remember reading this, um, I memorised the first 108 lines of Keats's Hyperion, which is a few years ago. And I, you, know, you have to recite, keep reciting it to remember it. And I remember sitting on a train and I just recited this first this first paragraph of it, which is like, you know, unbelievably good. And I just wept. Because the poem is all, well, he wrote it when his brother was dying of TV, which meant that he knew he'd be dying next, because he, he then caught it from his brother and he died. You know, he went to the bus stop, coughed into his handkerchief and it was full of blood. You know. um, so, you know, in this poem, is all this grief about his, his and it was his, he loved his brother's keys, absolutely loved them, there's incredible love between them. Um, and when you read the poem deeply, all of that grief is there, incredibly alive in the poem. But all also is something that gives that all this meaning. That even my grief, even my brother dying, actually there's something even that's bigger than that that gives it meaning. And when you touch that meaning, it's such a relief. It's such a relief not to be condemned to being the kind of rational twit that you so often are, you know. Such relief. So I think... Um, You'd, you'd think we could learn that from Buddhism. Probably even the word Buddhism is a very good description of Buddhism. Yeah. Um, but let's get rid of the secular and let's get rid of the divine and let's just try and find out how, how deep life runs. And <laughs> poetry is part of that, the yeah. art's part of that. Yeah, yeah, great. Yeah. Any, I just want to throw it open if anyone's got any questions for my trap and about, about how deep life runs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> um, you spoke about bravery and courage and the perception that you have at times have a lack of that. Yeah. Do you see the fact of putting your poems out there in published form as bravery? No, not really, no. Um, Why not? It's too much mixed up with my own vanity, I'm afraid. Um, I mean, the reason I'm here is <laughs> I was invited to this poetry gig, and that, then, but then I'm doing lots of teaching after this. Uh, it was a very good way of getting here. So, and it's to do with my vanity. Like, when I first won a prize for poetry, I won highly recommended, which was £15. And uh, there was a prize reading in York. I spent more on the train ticket <laughs> than I won, um, just to read my little poem. So it's, it's, it's too mixed up with vanity. Um, no, I think I'm a typical uh, insecure person in that I can be overconfident and underconfident. I'd love just to be that. I'm still not there. I'd love to be that just ordinary, here I am, that's who I am, neither overconfident nor underconfident. Um, I think courage mostly is a lived out thing. Um, I wish I'd said to, to say, um, I, I don't think, I don't think the poems, I think they're courageous from my point of view, but I don't think that they necessarily will be brothers. Actually, if anything, it's the hard work that's valuable, I think. Another one? I, um, I don't know if these will last for the second part. Is there any chance of like a small poem reading? A small poem. We'll read a small yeah, poem. Yeah, maybe, maybe you need to read a poem and we're going to have a cup of tea. Yeah, yeah, no, no, that's a good idea. Let's read a really small one. This is my smallest one. Just in case this one is starting to look Yes, of course. I'll read you a tiny... This is in my new collection. You can see how small it is. Look. 
<laughs> I mean, how small can you get? Um, and you see what that... It's the other thing to do, it's reading poetry at a glance. You know, you do that. What do you think that poem's about? Answers? White space. Yeah, who said that? So what does white space mean? It means relief. It means a breather from the stress of life. It means peace. Yeah, exactly. It's it means silence as well, doesn't it? So when you're writing something that small, what you're trying to do is trying to write something as tiny as possible to mean as much as possible. So the white, when you look, the, main, the white space is where a poem starts. It's the silence into which poems are spoken. And you, it, you're trying to make the words on the page do something to that white space. Um, so this is a rubai, uh, which is a Persian form, which just means a foursome. It was originally a rubaiyet, <laughs> which is uh, using that poem form and then has a linked rhyme. It was 24 lines long, so it would have got to about there. And that was the only good bit. <laughs> and that was a bit what I was writing with the girls around, with one of them, um, my nine-year-old, kind of chatting to me. So how I managed to do it, I don't know. Anyway, I'll read this very, very small poem. I'll read it, read it twice, because it's so small that it'll get you, get you down, yeah. It's called... It's a long title because, in a way, it's effectively a line, but you get to sneak a line in with the title. <laughs> it's called Sufficient Blueness to Give the Feel of Air. Sufficient Blueness to Give the Feel of Air. In paint, Cezanne has shown the means whereby we draw the heavens down to earth, and why this shadowed rock and gorse in mid-July will foster cousin blue and sister blue and sky. That's all there is. <laughs> I'll do it again just in case you missed it. <laughs> so the, it's got four rhymes. They all it's all in pentameter. It all rhymes at the end. of rubai. In paint, Cezanne has shown the means whereby we draw the heavens down to earth, and why this shadowed rock and gorse in mid-July will foster cousin blue and sister blue and sky. <laughs>